As you're seated, we come then to the preaching of God's Word, which is found in Psalm 51 and verse 7. It's here that David writes, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David knew something of the stain and the shame of his sin. And try as we might as a culture, when once we become informed of the reality of sin, we can escape the same sense that we need something that will answer the pollution of our sin. And yet it's not only the issue of a legal cleansing that is needed, but such as would purify us unto the service of God. And so, if you look again at context, here David, who has sinned grievously, is, is laying his hope upon the foundation of God's mercy. He confesses his sin. He asks for the pardon of his sin, not only actual, but original sin. And as we saw on Wednesday, he takes great hope in the promises of God. And now, with rapidity, there's petition after petition after petition. And yet you'll notice as he's seeking personal enjoyment of the blessings of salvation, it's to the end that he might serve God in serving his people. And so you'll notice he says in verse 13, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Verse 15, O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. And so he's not just interested in himself being, as it were, made right with God, though that is, of course, a focus here. He wishes to be so purified that he would be a holy vessel of service to the Lord. And this is an an impact of sin upon the Christian. In our shameful temptations and commission of sin, we look upon sin for a season as not that big of an issue. But so soon as it comes to us with conviction, it grips us and sees how we've been disqualified from holding fellowship with a holy God and how we are hindered from a faithful discharge of our calling to show forth His praises and to be of service to God's people. You can remember that Paul calls all men everywhere to do what? To be lifting up holy hands unto God in all forms of prayer. Think of that expression for a moment. There can't even be earnest prayer with confidence without the assurance of purity, of pardon, and so on. Here David knows that. He can't just ignore his sin. He can't deal with it in some casual way and say, well, what's the big deal? He needs the Lord in grace both to pardon him and to purify him. And notice now the text, verse 7. There's a parallel uh, uh, idea here. In verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Parallel to what else is in verse 7? Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. These two expressions, purge me and wash me, are of the same idea. The word purge has this idea of so cleansed that it would be taken away from me, that it would be removed from me. And this word wash me is a very physically full word. It has the idea of treading upon something. 
Now, in our day, when we wash something, we perhaps throw it in uh, the washing machine and it goes about its business and we don't think much of it. But you have artifacts that you can see of what people used to do in scrubbing through their laundry. And so they had a washboard with ridges and they would soak their laundry and they would rub it over and over and over again to get out the stains and the filth and the pollution that was there. And the word wash me has this notion of treading underwater with such physical activity that whatever is there bound up in the fabric would be loosed and thus washed away. And so it is that David is quite expressive in his earnestness of saying, I want whatever is unclean removed from me. Notice he uses the expression, as we've noted already in our readings, purge me with hyssop. This hyssop is a plant that was used, as we saw in Exodus 12, for the applying of the sacrificial blood. But it's also used, in fact, you can see it frequently in the book of Leviticus, in all of the purification that was required for various ceremonial forms of uncleanness. Notice, for instance, Leviticus chapter 14 and verse 6, when dealing with the cleansing of a leper, we read in verse 6 of Leviticus 14, as for the living bird, one of the animals that was to be used, he shall take it, and the cedar wood, and the scarlet, and the hyssop, and shall dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water, and he shall sprinkle upon him that is to be cleansed from the leprosy seven times, and shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the living bird loose into the open field. This gives us a picture and an understanding of what David is getting at. Think of the leper unclean. He was unable because of his uncleanness to take part in the life of Israel. He was forbidden to draw near to the tabernacle. He was forbidden to take part in the synagogue gatherings. He was forbidden to be along with the people of God and was in isolation. But once cleansed, he was restored. He was restored to the people of God. He was restored to usefulness and service in God's kingdom. He was restored to the enjoyment of the means of grace and the fellowship with holy, holy, holy God. Now notice what Paul or what David says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. The Hebrew word for clean here has the idea of bright. It's shining. It's not dull. And he says, I shall be whiter than snow. There are times where we think we see something that's white. And then when snow has fallen in the nighttime and we awaken, we wonder who's turned the lights on outside, such as the blanket of purity of white. And when the sun arises and, oh, we have to cover our eyes, such as the brightness of the whiteness of the snow. Well, here David is saying what's true there is what I want true of my soul. I want every granule of defilement taken away. I want every impurity of thought, of will, of desire, of speech, of action washed from me. And in context, that to the end, that he may again be restored to the fellowship of God. Well, brethren, all of this, of course, is David's personal and earnest 
desire. And yet, as this psalm is, it's for us. And there is, as we consider these things, three things before us to help us with this passage. Firstly, the need for such purifying. Secondly, the way of such purifying. And lastly, the result of such purifying. The need, the way, and the result. Now, the need is quite obvious when we consider David's context. He had sinned and grievously sinned. If we use the word that is the opposite of the word clean, we will enter into the realm of what David was feeling. Unclean. That's a word that is full of significant weight in the Scriptures. The leper who was defiled by his illness was to shout out so that others would know to stay away. Unclean. Unclean. Think for a moment, just removing all of the religious significance of that. Think of the relational and the social and the emotional weight of that burden. If I see someone on the path that I'm walking, I'm to start shouting out, unclean! And I'm not pointing the finger at somebody else saying, they're unclean or you're unclean. I'm saying of myself, I am unclean. Stay away from me. Brethren, how heavy that would have been relationally and socially and emotionally would have been all the more so religiously because by this uncleanness they were kept from the enjoyment of the means of grace and by the means of grace from the enjoyment of that way by which we better know and enjoy the presence of God. Now, David is not here ceremonially concerned because this psalm makes quite plain when he says, for instance, verse 16, Thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The point that he's making is this, the uncleanness that has now captivated my attention is that of the reality of my own sin. That I am by my sin unclean. And you can think for a moment, we read in Hebrews chapter 9, of the conscience which was plagued by the filth of dead works. Sin brings forth death. Brethren, that's not only the fact of our judgment of eternal death. It includes that. But sin brings forth the pain and the burden of dead works. And here, David senses his inability under the weight and by the impurity of his sin to go forth and be of any use to the service and advance of God's praise. He is aware of that filth. It's even still in our own culture, whatever its deficiencies may be, a testimony of purity when on the wedding day the bride wears a gown of white. Now you can imagine 
regardless of what our culture thinks of those things, of what a difficulty it would be for the bride on her wedding day to all of a sudden realize that that white gown has been stained with filth. She would feel the dress was unfit to wear to this occasion. Well, brethren, whatever is true culturally and by the significance of such uh, clothing, how much more so are souls when they are called to the service of God who is most holy and worthy of the greatest purity that when we become aware of the stain that hinders our service to the Lord. In other words, sin is the ultimate uncleanness. It is that which so makes impure our conscience. In fact, Hebrews 10 and verse 22 speaks of being washed from an evil, a twisted conscience. And you and I know something of this in our experience. We engage in sin, perhaps unknown to others, and then we're called to engage in worship. And what happens internally? Well, unless we've dealt with our sin by the blood of Christ, we find ourselves in all ways disqualified to engage in the exercise of faith and love and devotion. We might be able to muster up the outward strength to mutter a few words of prayer. We might be able to speak a few words of the Bible. Perhaps for a public gathering of worship, we might be able to sit. We might be able to move our mouths and expire such that words come out in singing praise. But we know the angst and the difficulty and the pain of trying to engage in the most holy act of devotion when our souls are conscious that our souls are unclean. That's what David's facing. Brethren, what's the need then for purifying? Well, because this stain, this uncleanness, cannot be removed by our own actions. cannot be removed by our resolutions, by our tears, by our works. Sin provides such a stain upon our souls that no effort of ours can cleanse it. Jeremiah 2 and verse 22, we have the word of God against his sinning people. For though thou wash thee with nitre and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord God. We might say it in our own culture, though you wash with bleach and continue to wash over and over again. Yet your iniquity is marked before me, saith your God. Now, the point is, this puts us in a place of needing to be purified. The need to be purified is sin. The need to be purified, moreover, is the fact that we cannot purify ourselves. Notice throughout this passage, throughout the psalm, but here in this verse, David is calling upon God, purge me with hyssop. Wash me. It's coming to God, saying, I can't do it myself. There are times when we become mistaken when convicted of our sins to think that my sorrows, my tears, my efforts, my works, that's what's going to get my soul clean again. 
but we commit the same error as did, oh, think of that emblem, as at Christ's uh, so-called trial, you hear the words as one washes his hands and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. Was he innocent of this man's blood? By this outward activity, by no means. And brethren, all the activity of our own efforts can never remove the stain of sin. But notice secondly, the way of purifying. It's already before us because David does not come and say, I've cleansed myself, I've washed myself, but rather I come to you, O God, and I ask that you would wash me. Now think of the wonder of this truth. The God against whom David has sinned so grievously is now the God by whose mercy David comes to say, my only hope is that you would wash me. In other words, the way of purifying is that we are purified by God's activity. We can't wash ourselves. We can't cleanse ourselves. We can make use of the means of God that He gives to us, but those means are our looking to God Asking God, pleading with God that He would do it for us. Let us ever be sure and certain that it is not by our works, it's not by our actions that we can remove the filth and impurity of our sin. It is solely by God's work of grace. And notice, David gives us help. And we could say even more clearly, God gives us help in seeing the way that God cleanses. Purge me with hyssop. It's a testimony, as we've emphasized several times, that David perceived clearer perhaps than you and I by way of his own exposure to the way of cleansing. The blood would be there before the priest. Hyssop would be dipped in the blood. And now the blood by the hyssop would be sprinkled upon the worshiper. Or, the leper would be in need of cleansing. His body has been healed, but he needs to be purified to be restored unto the holy fellowship of God's people and the means of grace. And so there would be these birds, and one, blood, uh, one bird killed, and the blood with water and cedar and scarlet wool and uh, with hyssop would be before, and this would then be applied and the man would now be pronounced clean. And what would happen at that moment? The leper would no longer have to walk around saying, unclean, unclean. But he could be restored not only to the fellowship of family and friends, but unto the fellowship of the means of grace and the worship of God and service to the Lord against whom he had sinned. Now, brethren, The Scriptures are quite clear that those things were anticipating the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can think of the devotional expressions of God's people, and in some ways it's quite strange. Remember, as a child, wondering at these expressions that we would use, wash me with your blood. And to a child's mind, it becomes quite strange. How can I be washed with blood? But see, the issue is built into the Old Testament idea of this cleansing 
from ceremonial uncleanness onto the restoration of purity. And so this expression is not just devout, it's biblical. Think of what John writes in 1 John 1.7. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. It doesn't cleanse our bodies from outward filth. And so in other words, it's not the finding of His blood and washing us by it. It's rather our sin must be cleansed from us. And the only agent sufficient to cleanse us is the blood of Christ. Revelation 1.5 speaks of Jesus Christ who has washed us from our sins in His own blood. Think of that language. He's washed us from our sins in His own blood. And the idea is this basin. And He's washing us and our sins. Just as David has said, wash me. This language of thrust me into the pool and uh, tumble me over again and again and again until all of the foul pollution is removed from me. And the saints in heaven rejoice in this thought. Christ Jesus Himself has washed me from all pollution of sin, iniquity, and transgression. In other words, the way of purifying was that which the Old Testament anticipated of Christ Jesus and His blood cleansing us from all our defilement. So in other words, His blood has to be applied. It's not physically or locally applied, but rather spiritually applied to us, by which we are made accepted in Christ. His blood accounted for our blood. His blood paying the debt that we owed but also His blood thus then cleansing us from the pollution of our sins. Our sins defile our souls, but Christ's blood cleanses our souls that we may now serve the living and true God. Notice that this all comes by way of request. David doesn't just sort of say it matter of fact. He's petitioning God, purge me, God, wash me. He's not doing some magical incantation. He doesn't come even then to the priests of the Old Testament and the priests say to him, David, here's what you need to do. Go and rattle off these many prayers multiple times. Go and do these many works multiple times over. Go and do all of these other things and then be assured of God cleansing and restoring your soul. It's none of that. Rather, it's David simply coming to God having confessed his sin and eyeing the sacrifice, anticipating Christ's sacrifice and saying, that's what I need to wash me in order that I may be restored and cleansed and purified. This is the way of purifying. It's by a simple coming to God and saying, that which cleanses, namely the blood of Christ, do wash my soul to the end that I be cleansed and restored. Brethren, that way is the way that stands today. So before moving on to the result, consider this. When it is that shame envelops us, and oh, the suffocating nature of the conviction of sin and the shame of it, when we realize I stand unable so much as to lift what might equate to 
the little finger of my soul in service to God because I stand defiled and corrupted and polluted by my sin. At what must we look? To what must we look? But the blood of Christ, which is here presented to us as that which does cleanse, does wash, and does remove all that defiles. So that when our consciences are burdened by the dead works of sin, that which cleaves to us may be washed from us by the blood of Christ. And so just as if we, through our physical work, do pick up filth upon our bodies, and then we wash ourselves and the filth is removed, then we are enabled unto more proper service in social settings. Well, so it is when in this life, we, through our own carelessness or watchlessness or failing to uh, be diligent in the face of temptation, do contract, indeed, the filth of corruption. It is then that we may go to Christ, assured that His blood is able to cleanse and restore us unto the happy and cheerful service of the Lord. Well, notice then, thirdly, the result of this purifying. How many here have had garments spotted and stained and with a hopeful wish, treating it after many and much attention given to it, hope that now it will come out of the wash without stain, only to find out that really there's no hope for the removal of that stain. Brethren, in the things of the greatest import, the things of the greatest concern, the biggest and most pressing stain, we have the certain hope that should God wash us, we shall be truly cleansed. Notice, purge me with hyssop. And oh, the simplicity of this. I shall be clean. Not somewhat, not a little bit, not a little bit better, but the whole of the idea, I shall be clean. Well, David, what do you mean? Here's what I mean. When you wash me, notice this language, I shall be whiter than snow. Not white as, but whiter than. That which David knew as the whitest of white, he says, when you wash me, I shall be whiter than that. My soul, which has polluted itself through the sins that I've committed, oh, that same soul shall be purified and cleansed. And so here is a real purity. It's not pretended. It's not artificial. It's real. I shall be clean. I shall be whiter than snow. I know the blessedness of the Scriptures regularly testifying of this. Isaiah 1 and verse 18, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God again and again testifying to us in ways that we understand. Oh, here's my soul polluted by my sin. But oh, the blood of Christ, as John says, cleanses us from all sin. All types of sin, yes, but all possession of sin as well. Oh, think of the wisdom of God 
that he presents to us David, a man with multiple claims upon his life by God. David, who was nothing, the least of the children of Jesse, and yet God brought him to be king over Israel. David, who had been given much and many victories and blessings. David, who had been given much favor, who had been delivered from Saul, who had been given a prosperous kingdom, who was a man after God's own heart, who himself was gifted with prophecy and was indeed a ruler of God's people. He is the one who sinned. Brethren, that sin is heinous, not only in itself, as we'll see, but in the circumstances of his calling. He was an Israelite. He was circumcised, thus in covenant with God. He was a king. He was a prophet. He was one highly uh, uh, privileged by God. And yet he rebelled against God. Oh, the stain that would have suffocated him. But then remember his sin. He was guilty of adultery. He was guilty of murder. Sins in themselves. Heinous. And so both by circumstance and by the sins themselves, he stands as a profane and polluted one. And yet he comes by God's grace, eyeing the mercy and grace of God, and he is assured that, O God, should you wash me, I shall be clean. I shall be pure. And so, brethren, here is great encouragement that as you and I come face to face with our own profanity, and at that moment, the volume of Satan's accusations gets turned up and says, look at what inexcusable, foul pollution possesses your soul. There is no reason to expect that God who is holy should ever look upon you again with any delight. And brethren, there's a seed of truth to it, but it misses the kernel. It misses the the, the fundamental truth that David here has been brought to see. It's true, my sins are wicked. I am vile by my sin. But God is a God of mercy and grace a God who pardons and cleanses and does so by the sacrificial blood applied to me. Brethren, here's our hope. It's not in denying our shame. It's not in saying, well, sin's not that big of an issue. Don't make a big deal of it. It's not denying our shame and saying, well, people shouldn't be so emotionally charged by their sin. That's not the way of dealing with our sin. It's by acknowledging its heinousness and yet acknowledging and trusting in the great provision of Christ Jesus and His blood which cleanses us from all sin. There's where true joy and restoration and peace is rediscovered. There's where a new life of useful service in the kingdom of God is regained. It's not by the self-help counsel of a self-help culture which helps no one in the end. 
It's not by stoicism, which tries to make men the best they can be, and yet has no answer to deal with the stain of their polluted soul. It is by the riches of a merciful and gracious God who through the offering of the blood of Christ provides you real, true, and personal cleansing from all of your sin, from all of its shame. Satan is well pleased when he can get us into the thought that here's the way to be pure. It's that my purity is not that big of a deal, or my impurity is not that big of a deal. Satan's well pleased when we start to see our impurity is so significant that nothing I can do, say, or desire can cause it to be cleansed from me. And so if he can't keep us from denying the impurity, he'll make us to be paralyzed by the impurity. But what he'll never do is hold before you the biblical record that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin. You might say, but my sin, you don't understand it. My sin is heinous. The thoughts that I've had, the words that I've spoken, I know the world doesn't care about it, but I've studied the Word of God and I see what God requires and I see the beauty of holiness and I see God transcendent, most glorious and pure and perfect. And when I reflect upon that, I say in the words of Isaiah, woe is me, I am undone. I now realize that even speech that is impure condemns me. And if it's merely speech that condemns me, What about my thoughts and desires and actions? I stand foul and polluted before God. Well, brethren, what of David? David stood in the same place. David stood in all of the sin's heinousness and saw it most clearly. David had privileges in the covenant people of God, and yet he polluted himself by his sin. And yet here he testifies, O God, as you cleanse me, I shall be whiter than snow. Brethren, here is the assurance given to every convinced and convicted sinner that so soon, so soon as the blood of Christ is applied to the soul polluted with sin, that soul is no longer impure, but is purified unto the glad rejoicing of fellowship and service to God, that God should purge us from dead works under the service of His name. See, here's something that the world doesn't understand. The thing that most saddens the convinced one of his sin this thing that most grieves him is that now he is distant from God. It's not just the shame of this world. There's shame in this world. A sin committed brings shame in this world. But it's, in essence, what Asaph realizes when he testifies, Whom have I in heaven but thee? 
There's this focus upon God. It's in essence what David here testifies earlier. When he says, against thee, the only, have I sinned. We're brought to see the supreme, the main, the primary focus and concern of our lives is God. What's the evidence that Adam and Eve were guilty of sin? Here it is. God comes to fellowship with His people and they've run from Him. They're aware of their shame and they say, I can't draw near to God. And oh, how Satan loves us to be aware of how we can't and how we shouldn't and how we won't in our sin. But oh, remember that it's God who has provided Christ. It's God who has appointed the shedding of His blood. It's God who has opened the uh, testimony of heaven saying, this is My Son, My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is My Son whose blood cleanses from all sin. This is the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. This is the One whose blood is that cleansing agent that purifies that all who look to Him are cleansed and restored. Well, brethren, let us not give in to the world's false comfort that belittles sin or belittles cleansing. But let us, in the full face of the ugliness of our sins, more clearly see the full virtue of the power of Christ's blood to cleanse us fully, truly, personally from all our sin. See, the world seeks to even out the equation by on the one side lessening the impurity of sin. And if it can lessen the impurity of sin, well, it then just needs a little boost here and there to make the end result pure. But when we see that the reality is impurity is impurity indeed, the only hope we then have is that which Christ provides us by His blood. And then it is, oh, the rejoicing that comes to pass when we realize such things and the blood of Christ does cleanse us from all sin, does restore us, does bring us into fellowship with God, then it is the blood of Christ becomes precious. Why is it that the saints in heaven do not cease to rejoice in Jesus Christ who has washed us from our sins with His own blood? Think of this for a moment. The saints in heaven are gazing with delight upon the glory of God. They are restored to the fullest expression of fellowship with God and are ever mindful that it's the blood of Christ that has given them this privilege. It's why when saints who live and continue to live in this world, and as they age, there is a sweetness of Christ to them. Not that can't be found in our early days of conversion and so on, but they've realized increasingly as the years pass on to decades, and decades bring them to the end of their life in this world, that it's the blood of Christ that is most precious to them. It's the blood of Christ which has pardoned them. It's the blood of Christ which purifies them. 
This is why the whole of the gospel ministry can be summed up in the preaching of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because there lies the key to all peace with God and purity of service in His name. And this is what David's getting at. Oh, so soon as you apply to me that blood, then it is that I'm clean. I don't know what it would be like to have perhaps a spouse in the Old Testament have developed a white spot and the instant sense, what is that? We have to go to the priest. And they go to the priest and the priest examines and says it's leprosy. And all of the steps are taken. And now the husband or wife has to say to the other, I love you and I'll provide for you, but I can't be with you. The brokenness of that difficulty. But oh, what a blessing when the illness is over and the spouse goes through the ritual of cleansing and no longer is heard by the word of unclean, but is welcomed again unto the restored fellowship of the home. Brethren, how much more when it is that we who have the uncleanness of our own sins are restored unto the fellowship of God again. Well, what is it that restores us? It's the blood of Christ. It's the fountain, Zechariah, which is told to us, opened for sin and uncleanness that cleanses us from all sin. As we close, brethren, perhaps it is that you stand in the great assurance of the blood of Christ cleansing you and rejoice that God has opened unto you the knowledge of that way. But it may be that you struggle with the sense of shame. Maybe so that you struggle with your own guilt and your own unfitness to worship God. Perhaps as a father or a mother or a grandparent, you say, who am I to teach my children and grandchildren? Who am I as a spouse to be of any spiritual counsel to my husband or wife? Who am I in whatever circumstance I am to be of any usefulness in God's service at all because I have failed, I have sinned, I stand guilty and polluted by my sin? You have the same hope that not only David had, but every sinner under the sounding of the Gospel has. The blood of Christ cleanses. Children, your hope is not in your parents. Your hope is not in your pastor. Your hope is not in your works, your prayers, your improvement over your friends. It's not in your memorizing of Scripture. It's not in your coloring of the various scenes of the Scripture's stories. Your hope rests exclusively in the blood of Christ applied to you. And oh, the joy to know that howsoever dark the stain of my sin is, however tightly contracted it is into the very depths of the fabric of my being, the blood of Christ comprehensively cleanses from all sin. Brethren, as we close, consider this. Who is it that provides that blood. It's none less than the God 
against whom you've sinned. Who is it that tells you it's the blood that cleanses? It's none less than the God against whom you've sinned. Who is it that reminds us and pleads with us to consider the blood which cleanses us? Who is it that places in our mouths in the praise of His name such a petition that we come to Him and say, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Cleanse me and I shall be whiter than snow. Who is it that does that? It's the very God against whom we've sinned. Do you not see how pleased God is that we come to Him by the blood of Christ to be cleansed? When Satan comes and says, stand back, consider your filth, go again to God who says, come because of your filth that I may cleanse you. You see, when we start to understand the workings of God by His covenant of grace, what we see is it's not us trying to bargain with God and plead with God and find an avenue to win with God that He would do what He's rather unwilling to do. It's that God is surrounding us with all manner of encouragements saying, see and look again. I am the one who is pleased to cleanse you. I am the one who am glad to cleanse you. Here I stand. Do you remember the last of the seven epistles in Revelation chapter 3? There Christ comes. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. He that opens unto me, what does He do? He says, I come in and I will sup with Him and He with me. It's not Christ standing back and saying, well, my door's locked up, and you better knock fiercely and ferociously before I'll even entertain the thought of having fellowship with you. It's God by His Word coming to us saying, look and see, I delight in mercy. I rejoice in pardoning. I am a God who is glad to purify. And it's He who gives us these words that we with our sin would come with the assurance that not only is this the way, but that God is pleased to receive us by this way and cleanse us from all our defilement. Surely, God then is worthy of unending praise to the glory of His grace. Would you stand with me for prayer?